and welcome to the 100 Club. My name's Tom, joined with, by Rich once again, here to talk about the 100, and joined by a very special guest for this episode, who is Matt Roller. Uh, Matt, hi. Hi, thanks very much for having me, guys. Uh, you're more than welcome. Uh, for those who aren't aware, Matt, uh, you've probably read some of his stuff because he is an assistant editor with uh, ESPN Quick Info, perhaps the definitive source of cricket information on the internet, I would say, um, and the lead there for the 100. So we're going to have a chat about the 100. That's all right with you, Matt? Absolutely. Let's get stuck in, guys. Yeah, let's do it. So, um, you know, it got off to a slightly sort of stop-start kind of beginning the 100 had what I think the ECB might call a decent first year maybe not perfect but going into its second year how would you see the state of the 100? Um, wow a very a, a broad one to start um, yeah it's a very good question I think um, I think you're 100% right that the ECB would sort of hail the first year as a success I think um, I, I would tend to generally agree but it depends again sort of your your general outlook on the game I guess and um where, where people stand what their priorities are i think personally the tournament in and of itself went as well as they could have pretty much possibly hoped especially when you sort of consider the constraints of um launching something as as ambitious as what they have done in the uh in a in you know a, the midst of a, a pandemic having delayed it by a year um i think um yeah, I think that, that obviously it will probably take five to ten years to actually get a, a decent gauge on what it's going to do to to the, the rest of the English game as a whole. Um, I think particularly when you look at its sort of knock-on effects for, for example, you know England's Test team, it's very hard to to draw any conclusions about that after a single season. Um, if you if you want to see what it's going to do to England's T20 team, I think exactly the same thing. It's going to be it's going to take. Um, a long period of time to draw any conclusions about it. But I think what the ECB will have been pleased by will be firstly the sort of attendance and broadcast figures for um, the women's game in particular, um, having sort of stumbled upon the, the concept of doubleheaders almost by accident, having initially planned to yeah. stage quite a lot of women's games as standalone events at sort of smaller county grounds. Um, and also, I think just sort of, yeah, the um the standard of competition and the buy-in from players having um it, there was obviously initially quite a lot of skepticism when uh the format was sort of soft launched i guess in 2018 um a while ago now um but yeah i think i think the the standard um the standard was pretty high and i think the players really bought into it and i think that's pretty important uh going into going into this summer which is obviously yeah the, the second year i mean covering domestic cricket here in England, as you do, you obviously spend a lot of time going around the grounds. What's sort of been the general consensus of uh, people this season when you talk to them about the 100? As you said, you know, some were positive, others perhaps not not quite so as much. Yeah, well, it, it depends hugely on on sort of where you go, um, I think, and also who in particular you're talking to. I think speaking to, to players, the majority of them are pretty um, pretty keen on uh, how the first year went, I think particularly women's players. I'm speaking to um, Alice Capsey at Surrey's Media Day a couple of weeks ago, and she obviously one of the breakout stars of it um, is likely to to benefit from it, playing it for ten or fifteen years or however long. And um, you know, I, understandable why she would be positive about it. Otherwise, <laughs> men's players, you know, uh, it, it, again a bit of a split. I think some are really keen on it, um, particularly those who have, who have done really well out of it. Um, it's been someone like Laurie Evans before the draft. He was. 
um, pretty excited by the whole thing. Um, it's obviously been pretty beneficial for his career as well. I think if you look at some sort of senior county pros who are being overlooked for squads or whatever, some of them have a bit more, uh, maybe a bit more resentful about it, especially um, especially behind closed doors. Um, yeah. But yeah, and I think in terms of fans and anecdotally speaking to, to people I know in, in the game or whatever, it's um, a, a, re a real mixed bag because, you know, you have some people, you know, coaches quite like it, especially those that are involved because, um, you know, it's a, it's a good source of income for them. It's a high standard. It's a, something different, something fun in the middle of the summer. Um, some fans really like it. Um, some fans think it's the worst thing um, that's ever happened to English cricket. So, yeah, I, I don't expect that sort of culture war that we saw, that we've seen, I suppose, over the last sort of four or five years in English cricket to to stop anytime soon. I think that's going to... Um, yeah, keep keep going for for the foreseeable future. But yeah, we'll see. Uh, we love it, really. We love it, uh, especially for my Somerset boys. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, you mentioned Laurie Evans there, clearly as a beneficiary, as a as an advocate. You know, one of the five uh, English players who went at the hundred twenty five thousand pound bracket in the recent draft. Um, and you mentioned it in an article as well, leading up to the draft, how the domestic players might benefit from availability and their ability to actually turn out for the full uh, season this year. Do you, do you want to just sort of give us an overview of what that was like, talking to agents, talking to players? Yeah, so so I mean, the, the upshot is that I think partly is sort of a, a COVID hangover because of the fact that the um, obviously there was a, a period of what, the best part of six months where there was very little um, men's bilateral international cricket. Um, a lot of series have been rescheduled for, for this summer. Um, all for various points, which have pushed series back, meaning that sort of the slight there was there's never been a sort of clearly defined window in the same way as, for example, the IPL. Um, but th there was a bit of a gap uh, originally in the futures to future tools program for quite a few teams um, this year, which just doesn't exist at the moment. So almost every men's international team, I think, um, has a has a series of some sort that overlaps with the hundred this year. Um, and I think basically what what that's done is meant that um, you know. For people like um, Lockie Ferguson, Babar Azam, uh, David Warner, that's meant uncertainty over their availability and what teams have, for the most part, done as a result. It said, well, you know, we'll take the hit this year. We'll get a slightly lower profile overseas player in a lot of cases or someone that um, doesn't play international cricket anymore. Um, we'll, we'll take the hit and we'll instead we'll secure some domestic talent that we can then retain for and have as part of our squad for hopefully four or five seasons. Um, and instead, yeah, take that slightly, slightly, um, I suppose, smaller overseas name um, in terms of recognition for the, for. So, I, I, I guess if you look at Welsh Fire, they're probably quite a good example. Um, they locked in, you know, Joe Clark and Tom Banson as their top two picks, who are both guys in their sort of early to mid twenties, who they'll be hoping can uh, be their, their, you know, opening partnership or part of their top order for five years at least. Um, and instead, they've, you know, rather than gambling on someone like Warner being available for the whole comp, they've said, "What well, we'll take, um, at a, you know, David Miller, for example, at 75k rather than Warner at 125k, um, because we're pretty sure he's going to be available because yeah. there's a, quite a good gap in South Africa's schedule if you don't play tests. Um, they've gambled on someone like Nassim Shah being available at 60k, who's obviously young and exciting, but probably not a big name in terms of recognition. Um, but yeah, the result is that there's obviously quite a few English players who, who maybe aren't as high profile as people would expect who are earning quite a lot of 
money for um four weeks so someone like liam dawson is probably yeah. you know um laughing all the way to the bank with 125k that he wasn't quite <laughs> expecting you, you you were talking about the uh the 2022 draft just then and um obviously it was delayed by i think a week or so because of the shane Warne memorial service and, and, and rightly so but then what happened next was slightly odd in terms of doing the draft behind closed doors and then sort of drip feeding the results the day afterwards. And for a tournament that only lasts a month, you know, it's really crucial to sort of have those high profile media moments earlier in the summer. So do you have any insight as to why the ECB did that? Yeah. So, so um, from what I understand, it won't necessarily be the, the plan um, every year going forward. I think there's, there's um, probably a recognition that it didn't quite go to plan this year in terms of obviously um sort of interest in the draft i think people who actually bought into the hundreds first year were actually slightly underwhelmed by um the fact you know the, these picks came out 24 hours after they'd actually happened and sort of yeah. uh, you know lunchtime on a tuesday i think it was um i think basically the reason that that it was done was logistic was logistics um so the you know the majority of head coaches who are actually making the picks were involved in the ipl um which you know would have been a problem regardless of the the delay by a week um and you know even assistant coaches analysts a lot of them weren't in the country so i think personally i think there was a balance to strike between the sort of the first 2019 draft which was all singing all dancing sky studios three-hour live show versus what happened which was a sort of yeah slightly um i suppose bizarre um drip feeding of of information um, sort of death by press release. Um, but yeah, I think I think I think in future years, I would be surprised if they didn't try and put together some kind of package where they had a, um, a even if not necessarily a live show and as live show. So um, you got the idea of picks happening as they did rather than what actually happened, which yeah, seemed seemed to me like a, a, a poor way to try and um, promote selection for for, uh, you know, the selections that the teams were making, because um, you know, even though you had a, a bit of a hit in terms of the quality of uh, names involved, you still have people like, you know, I suppose Andre Russell is probably quite a good example. You could you could make it a pretty big thing that um, you've got a you know superstar of T20 cricket coming over and playing in the hundred, whereas instead it just sort of was one of several press releases on a, on a weekday. Um, and yeah, I thought it fell a little bit flat. Uh, trying to follow the uh, the live text blog on the Hendred website was yeah it was slightly baffling but uh, <laughs> yeah. as you say though some big names did announce and uh, and plenty of players registered as well so you know we've got some interest coming through there I was surprised slightly to see the number of West Indian players who were picked up particularly Karen Pollard Dre Ross you know sort of around as well um, did you get any feeling for their availability this summer because we obviously know I think that they've got. Uh, New Zealand visiting the West Indies this summer. Is there a particular uh, tell that we, we we think more the West Indies players are going to play than we thought? Um, I, I suppose a few of them are sort of um, slightly different cases. So Russell and Narine have both played fairly, and Narine in particular, fairly limited of international cricket in the past few years, just because of um, their sort of personal situations, I guess. And Bravo is obviously retired now from international cricket, so yeah. he should be available for the most part. I was really surprised, to be honest, that um, Pollard got taken as the first pick um, because, yeah, from what I understand, West Indies are yet to confirm the dates, but they, they play, I think, India and in some games in uh, sort of July heading into early August and they play New Zealand in August, as you say, and then the CPL starts at the end of August. So I think it's personally, I think it's quite possible that Pollard won't play a game in the 100 this year. So I thought it was a pretty baffling 
um, yeah. first pick. I think the other guys, I think Russell, um, Bravo and the Ryan, I would be surprised if they played fewer than sort of five or six of the eight group games each, um, which I think I think teams are pretty happy to to compromise on that given um, what the availability was this year. But yeah, it definitely has has been a, like a massive talking point among teams who's who's going to be available um, for how long for all that sort of thing. So, um, you know, you can see certain teams like Northern Superchargers have gone with DJ Bravo, Faf Duplessis and Wahab Riaz, all of whom are sort of ages 35 yeah 35 plus and heading yeah. towards the end of their careers but then the the i suppose that that what they must be thinking presumably is um having guys who are no longer sort of regulars for their international teams uh but are still performing in franchise cricket means that they should be available for the whole competition which is clearly a major thing because if you go for three guys in the prime of their career then you might lose them for the whole comp um to international cricket so it is a, it's a really tough juggling act this year um and yeah i think I think again, it's it's very important to have a, a strong domestic core, um, preferably of players that aren't going to get called up to Test cricket because, yeah, there are so many different availability questions to juggle. Let alone, and that's even before you consider that um, there's very little stability in England's Test squad. So anyone really at this <laughs> stage could get called up to the first two Tests against South Africa. I've said it before and I'll say it again. My bat remains ready to go, uh, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I was just looking at sort of the general makeup of the different squads and how they put it together for year two. I think I think in the first year, the final ended up being between quite two different styles in the way the Phoenix and the Bravo went about the hundred. You know, sort of Phoenix a lot more kind of you know heavy metal cricket, big you know, big bash wallet, whereas you know Southern Break a bit more controlled. You know, the Mahela ball approach. Do you think in year two we're going to see teams sort of coalescing around those styles, or do you think we're going to see sort of you know, different different ways being employed in the second edition. Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I think um, I think you you have a couple of teams that the two that you mentioned definitely already have sort of a, a clear or relatively clear identity. Um, I think having spoken to a couple of people at Trent Rockets before the draft and looked at the picks they had, they they've said that they're sort of looking to go um, very sort of ultra attacking batting, um, which which makes sense with the, the I think they signed three. Sort of top five batters, um, all of whom are pretty attacking in Tom Cola, Cadmore, Colin Mumro, and Ian Cobain in the draft. Um, I think, I think basically that there's there's a few teams that are sort of very much um, built to sort of, I guess, make the most out of home advantage. So Manchester um, are quite an obvious one there because mm. um, Old Trafford, when it doesn't rain, which is obviously a, a sort of big hypothetical <laughs> in Manchester, but um, they they've they've picked a side that has potentially you know they could play three or four spinners um and it's a you know it's a pitch that generally does spin so i think in in their ideal world they'll be looking to win three or four of their four home games um and sort of doing what they can away um then uh looks like sort of oval have a very have, have again prioritized quite a strong domestic bowling attack uh if you look at sort of the current sakib mahmoud reese topley even danny briggs who they got in the draft yep. um that that's I, again, a sort of, I suppose, more more towards Southern Braves sort of um, bowling heavy strategy, um, and then a few of the other teams. I mean, uh, yeah, Welsh Fire. I suppose it depends how they go on their balance because I don't know exactly who's going about six and seven. I think they've got a few different options there that could quite sort of considerably change the makeup of their side. Um, but yeah, I think basically it, it it will be quite it will still be quite dependent on who, who each captain is, who each coach is. 
in terms of what style of cricket they want to play. I think, um, yeah, I would be I would be surprised if you had too many teams that were looking to just sort of knock it about and um, defend with a, a sort of ultra strong bowling attack. But I could see, for example, yeah, Southern Brave like they did last year rely heavily on their bowlers and uh, yeah, probably Oval to an extent as well. I think the other teams are sort of slightly more lean towards um, being batting sides. But yeah. And the other factor that we've got that's new this year is the overseas wildcard pick that each of the teams is going to have. So a fourth overseas player, potentially. Do you do you have an understanding of how that's going to work or where teams might be looking? Yeah, so I think I think that happens um, in the second week of June, I think. Uh, basically, that the so each each squad will now have four overseas players with a maximum of three playing it in a single game. Um, with the sort of rough idea, I think that there there were a lot of replacements last year where people were unavailable at certain times, and hopefully having an extra player in the squad means that um, you know if your fast bowler gets injured, you don't end up bringing in a domestic player because no one's able to fly in at short notice, and you can bring in uh, an extra overseas player and maintain that quality. Uh, in terms of where teams are looking, um, I think again, sort of it's quite case by case. So I think. Um, some i think i think the majority of teams will probably look towards signing a sort of fairly versatile player so um especially if you look at the guys who are uh, overseas players in the blast but not yet signed for the hundred so people yeah. like i'm thinking carlos brathwaite um dan christian both of them sort of bowling all-rounders who can um you know fill fill various different gaps if an overseas player gets injured um then also i suppose there's people like ashton turner glenn phillips uh, in the blast, who might might be seen as useful options in the middle order, um, and then a few teams. You know, I'm looking at, um, I suppose, someone like Trent Rockets um, have they've, they've got Rashid Khan, who they know is going to be unavailable for a fair bit due to Afghanistan commitments. So I wonder if their sort of overseas wildcard might be a uh, a wrist spinner who can come in and replace him, and then when he goes, they then replace him with a different style overseas player. Um, so basically, they try and lock someone in rather than. Uh, scrambling about during the tournament um but yeah so i think i it, from what i understand i think that um that that wild card won 50k so a relatively low um salary compared to most of the overseas players so i think some teams will gamble on like a younger guy who might come back in future years some teams will just go with a sort of versatile experienced guy who they know can be a backup member of the squad and is going to add a bit of experience and a bit of depth and uh, maybe a few extra options for, uh, yeah, in case someone gets injured or something like that. So I guess my question would be, uh, you know, you're, you're going to be up and down the country in August. You know, I presume you'll be going to most of the games following this all. Who who are you particularly looking forward you know, to, to to watching, a uh, player or team? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think... Um, Last year, the, the one thing I was disappointed, the one gate, the sort of ground I was disappointed not to have made it to during the tournament was Edgebaston because that looked, I think they played on, right. they played on the hybrid pitches there, which looked, which were like incredibly high scoring. Um, and obviously it's an amazing atmosphere, even for T20 Blast games, England games, whatever. So I think I'd, I'd definitely really like to experience that. And they obviously had such a um, sort of fun, exciting batting lineup last year. So um yeah particularly looking forward to seeing them uh in terms of players it's a good question really um i think uh i i, I think I, I always like um i've always been a big fan of sunil narine 
Um, and I think he sort of showed some glimpses last summer of how exciting he can be, which I think he's someone because of the fact that he's not actually played that much of his international cricket or, or T20 cricket full stop in the UK. He maybe sort of slips under the radar in terms of people's mm. thoughts on who the, who the T20 greats are. Whereas, yeah, I think he's he's such a legend of the T20 game that I think, um, yeah, he's a really exciting guy. So I think if, if Oval can sort of can try and make sure he's available for as much as possible of the season, um and yeah, obviously he's going to go off to the CPL right at the end, but I think he'll play a decent number of games. And he's he's such a match winner, you know, obviously with the ball, but then also if he can, uh, if they use him as a pinch hitter again and he slogs a few at the top of the order. Um, yeah, I think he's a he's such a fun guy to watch. And I sort of hope that, yeah, um, cricket fans in the UK get the chance to actually watch him in the flesh in a way that they probably haven't before. Um, so yeah, I think that would be really fun. So those, those are probably the two um, in the men's comp. Yeah, Birmingham get to get up to Edgebaston at some point and uh yeah Sunil Narayan as a player love it I can't wait to add some Hasaranga to my uh my summarizer <laughs> for myself but there you go um Matt we're pretty much out of time so I gotta say thank you again also I neglected to mention at the beginning but many congratulations on recently winning ECB Krista Martin Jenkins young cricket journalist of the year that's tremendous and uh if you uh want to follow more of rap Matt sorry me, Matt. He's on. <laughs> he's on Twitter at Matt Mola, and clearly I will put a link down below to all of your stuff on ESPN Cricket. Info. It's a, uh, it's genuinely the best place to keep up to date with the tournament, barring of Perfect. course the hundred club. Thank <laughs> you very Matt. much for having me, guys. Appreciate uh, it. You're more than welcome. Have a great summer. <laughs>